0: Good Friday evening Ben is off this week my name is Shane Foxman the text line is 87739998988773999898 what are you doing uh, as we celebrate Earth Day, what are you doing to help make the uh, planet a better place? Uh, our next guest is Lloyd Alter, architect, uh, design editor of treehugger.com, professor of sustainable design at Ryerson School of Interior Design, and author of Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle. Uh, Lloyd, thanks for joining us. A pleasure to be here. First off, what what <laughs> is a 1.5 Degree Lifestyle?
1: Well, the um, IPCC reports... Uh, basically concluded that we have to keep the rise of the global average temperature below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, It originally said two, and then they said, well, we really have to do 1.5. And so living a 1.5 degree lifestyle is trying to live the kind of lifestyle that has a carbon budget that we all have to live by, and uh, basically put out Less carbon emissions, and it comes out to um, the twenty thirty IPCC report average was two point five tons of carbon per year. So what I tried to do was live a year with less than two point five tons emissions, which is hard when you've got Canada and the average for lifestyle emissions is fifteen tons a year. So
0: that's quite the difference. That's what I was trying to do. Quite the difference. Uh, Quite the difference. So okay, so how did you go about that?
1: Well, there are actually three or four major things that influence your carbon footprint. And the biggest one is mobility. If you're driving an F-150 pickup truck, uh, the average distance in Canada, you're putting out seven tons a year just by doing that. Uh, My car until I started this experiment was a much smaller car, a little Mazda Miata, but I sold that and I got an e-bike. So basically, I spent the year mostly driving the e-bike. Occasionally, my wife and I, she drove the Subaru. We would go up north for the summer. But for the rest of the time, I was entirely on the e-bike. Does the e-bike have any sort of uh, footprint whatsoever? Well, there's a footprint of everything of what you call embodied emissions from making things. So it's got it's got like uh, 50 pounds, 20 kilos of steel in it and aluminum and the battery. So there is a footprint in making the thing. But it's like one three hundredth of making a car. And the battery, of course, is one three hundredth the size as well. So it's pretty small. And as far as sort of. The electricity for charging it. Well, if you live in BC, Ontario, or Quebec, it's all hydro and nuclear where I am, so that is that's free. If you've got an electric vehicle, so it's the real thing. It's just the making of it. Okay. okay. This is a problem. This is a problem with electric cars because everyone thinks, oh, they're fine, but you know, uh, a new F one fifty Lightning pickup truck has forty tons of embodied carbon, so that doesn't work.
0: Well, it's interesting when you just bring up, uh, you know, electric cars, because that seems to be the big push, the big move right now. They're telling you that's the way to go, that's the way to go.
1: And I would argue that point simply because it takes so much to make them. It takes about 15% more than building a regular car because of the batteries. And, you know, it will in British Columbia it will pay for itself in terms of carbon in about a year and a half but it still is a huge amount of energy and carbon to make the thing and everybody discounts that embodied carbon in British Columbia you're leaders in understanding it in architecture which is why you're getting so many new buildings being made out of wood so that they have a lower embodied carbon but in fact it's in everything you have to count it in your everything from your iPhone to your car to your buildings
0: so, you know, when you say that it is everywhere, uh, again, everything, I guess, we anyone, anything someone can do uh, is a start. So whether you ride, yes. even if you rode your bike to work, in, because being practical, uh, people love their cars. You know, the, the, more, uh, the more roads and highways we have, the more cars it seems we have. So uh, even if you just rode your bike two or three times a week, it would help make a difference, I would think.
1: Absolutely. And I defy you to tell me people really say they love their cars. If they're commuting every day to work and they're sitting in that car trying to get across the bridge and they're paying the gas prices, they are now they're in hawk to their cars They're and they they have their cars and they may. Some people may actually like getting away and sitting in their car, but I don't believe people love their cars. And yet you go out in the bike lanes in Vancouver and I've ridden them. They're wonderful. Um People love their bikes when they get into it, except yeah. when it's raining, of course.
0: Well, no, that's unfortunately half the year. <laughs> but yes, <Yeah. laughs> that was the. I used to think as they kept making more and more bike lanes uh, in Vancouver, and I used to think, you know what? If it didn't rain half the year, I, I'd probably want to ride my bike. Like, I, I don't want to ride my bike in the rain to go to work. Like, it just, I, I, I hear you, though. I, I understand what you're saying. So, what, besides our cars, what else can people do to kind of uh, live the uh, 1.5 degree lifestyle?
1: Well, it's funny. I was interviewed uh, last year by a a young woman who was a journalist in Vancouver and didn't have a car, and she lived in a small high-rise apartment and was a vegan. And I said, you know, you're pretty much doing it right now (laughs) because you know without even thinking about it because living in apartments you're only you've got one exterior wall usually so the per capita cost of heating and cooling is uh, the carbon footprint is much smaller and meat red meat in particular is very very high in in embodied carbon, if you get rid of red meat, you can still eat chicken, you can still eat fish, because they're not ruminants, they don't live a long time, and they don't fart and burp out methane. And so you don't have to be a vegetarian, being a vegetarian actually doesn't do you much good at all, because you could still eat a lot of dairy and dairy's high, you don't have to be a vegan, you have to be what I call a climatarian, <clears throat> you know, eat according to the climate, which means no red meat, uh, no flown-in vegetables, local seasonal food when you can, and that's not hard. You know, if you're, you don't have to give that much up to say, okay, I'm not going to have a steak. I'm instead going to have a chicken. That's not really hard at all. At least I didn't find it for a year, and I happened to have a wife who's a very, very good cook and was willing <laughs> to make all kinds of other wonderful things.
0: What was so as that year's going on. What what was did did anything surprise you or or, or offer a challenge that you didn't expect?
1: Well, <clears throat> I was, in a sense, one of the few people who was lucky to decide to do this exercise in the middle of a pandemic <laughs> because the one thing I love is traveling and flying. And the year before I did this, Scott, I went to do a lecture in Portugal. I went to a conference in Munich and I got to meet people and I did a lot of lecturing flying out to British Columbia, actually. But, and giving up flying is going to be the biggest, most difficult thing for, I think, any Canadian because we don't have the rail system. And if you drive, you're putting out a lot of carbon that way. That, for me, would have been the hardest thing if it wasn't a pandemic. And I know that next year, this year, it will be a problem for me again because I do like to see the world. And it's what we do about flying is going to be one of the hardest things. I know that they're starting a trial of electric airplanes out of Vancouver flying to some nearby islands, but for anything long, longer distance, there's just not the technology for it.
0: So for, for someone like yourself in that case, who, who does love to travel, but you, you are trying to really shrink your, your carbon footprint, uh, is it become a trade off? Does it, you know, I'll do less of this just so I can take a trip. Like, is is that, it's all about kind of finding the medium somewhere?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the way I did this is I built a monster spreadsheet and I tracked everything on a spreadsheet and, um, that that means instead of being doctrinaire and saying, well, I'm never, ever having a hamburger again, uh, you have a hamburger and you say, well, you know, that was 7,200 uh, 7, 7, grams of carbon, which is like a day and a half of my entire budget. But, you know, you spread that over a week or you put it on the spreadsheet and the next day you do something a little less. I had to go to New York when I was in the middle of this because the company I write for got bought out by a big New York company. And I did a 30-hour trip that basically was a month's worth of carbon on my budget. But again, I amortized it over the whole year being the only trip I did. And then it doesn't amount to much. So you have to just be careful, limit it a bit. The thing that surprised me more than anything, actually, when I did the experiment, of the year is that I'm an Apple fanatic. I own every product that they make, (laughs) and I love buying them. And my little iPhone 11 here, and I'm going to be using this 11 for a very long time because I learned this, it uses almost no electricity to run. I mean, that's how Apple designs them, so they'll run all day. But it's got 80 kilograms of embodied carbon. And 80 kilograms, I mean, you and I probably can't lift that if we tried. And if I add, when I started adding that up and added my iPad Pro and my MacBook Pro and my watch and my AirPods, it turned out that if you used Apple's recommended uh, how long they think they're all going to last, that it was bigger than my house it be, in terms of my carbon footprint, it was huge. So what you have to do with this is start making things last longer because everything's an exercise of sort of amortizing the upfront carbon over the life of the thing. So I'm not going to be getting an iPhone 13 or 14 or that. I'm not going to be exchanging this until it dies. And I'm going to be doing the same with the notebook computer that I'm talking to you on because we keep changing the stuff the latest fancy new thing comes up and we go buy it, and then you're just starting the whole cycle over. I mean, the notebook is half a year's worth of carbon in the thing, just making it.
0: Amazing. Uh, Lloyd Alter is our uh, guest architect, uh, design editor of treehugger.com, professor of sustainable design at Ryerson School of Interior Design, and author of Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle. We're going to take a uh, quick break. Uh, When we come back, uh, we'll talk to uh, Lloyd about the two different kinds of carbon. Uh, I'm Shane Foxman. You're listening to A Little More Conversation. Good evening, Ben is off. My name is Shane Foxman. Thanks for spending some time with us this evening. The text line is 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. What are you doing uh, as far as your part in uh, making the planet a better place? Uh, We'll get to your texts throughout the show. Uh, We continue our conversation with Lloyd Alter, architect, uh, design editor of treehugger.com, professor of sustainable design at Ryerson School of Interior Design and the author of Living the 1.5 Degree Lifestyle. Uh, Lloyd, before we get into the different types of, of carbon, I just is the onus on the individual, is the onus on the government, is the onus on business, or, or do we all have a role to play to kind of uh, reverse what's going on?
1: We all have a role to play. uh, For years, people were saying, oh, carbon footprint doesn't exist. It was just a campaign started by BP, you know, measure your carbon footprint. Or you often hear, you know, 100 big oil companies are responsible for 70% of emissions. But in fact, you know, we're buying what they're selling when the oil companies are ma- are, make, are pumping oil and we're buying the t- cars and the trucks to fill them. So government has a role to be regulating like fuel efficiency uh, for doing programs like one of your advertisements was talking about, which are government programs to give you money to insulate your house. Um, There are all kinds of things. And, you know, particularly in British Columbia where you are, where you've just had such a terrible couple of years of weather disaster after weather disaster. I mean, it's costing everybody billions to rebuild the highways and rebuild the infrastructure after all the floods and all the fires. So, it's obvious that everybody has to pitch in and do something, and that includes individuals.
0: I, I always find it interesting. You know, we elect governments; they're supposed to make the hard decisions and lead. But it seems more often than not, uh, they see which way the wind's blowing. Okay, people are uh, people are starting to pay attention. People are trying to, to to lower their carbon footprint. Then they get involved, as opposed to leading the way.
1: Well, yes, I mean they, they're. The politicians often follow the voters because the voters are the ones who put them in power. And that's why personal action and getting out there is uh, and doing something and setting an example is such an important thing. You know, you're not going to get bike lanes if people aren't riding bikes, although bike lanes encourage people to ride. But it, it takes both push and pull. Uh- so we're all in this together.
0: No, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I, I, I didn't know this until today, and I wanted you to kind of explain it. Uh, when we think about carbon and we think of buildings, we usually, I guess, are thinking of what? The operational carbon, the stuff that we see coming out of the smokestacks and everything else, right? Right. What's embodied carbon?
1: Well, embodied carbon is a terribly stupid name for the carbon that goes into making something. And people think that, oh, it's embodied, it's in the thing, but it's not embodied in the thing, it's in the air. So I, t- I tried to change the name of it. And I've, a lot of people have been doing this to call it upfront carbon. It's the carbon that is emitted upfront. If you're going to make a building, you've got to make the steel. And it takes a lot of energy to make the steel. So that's the upfront carbon there. It takes a lot of energy to make concrete. is a huge, huge issue of upfront carbon. And this is why you're again seeing in British Columbia, which has, such, of course, such fabulous wood, you're seeing the development of what they call cross-laminated timber, uh, where you're building the tallest building in the wood building in the world was in BC, at UBC, this 18-story student residence that's just been beaten by a 19-story building in, in um Norway. And so there's like everybody's trying to be the tallest wood building, because that's a very good way to deal with embodied carbon or upfront carbon. The issue of it is something that people are beginning to think about in buildings. Uh, British Columbia, I think, is putting it into some of their codes coming up. But it's not something that anybody thinks about. And as we talked about before, I mean, the embodied carbon of my iPhone is the upfront carbon of making that is incredible, 80 kilograms of carbon for a thing that burns almost nothing to run. And again, in British Columbia, where there's the effort to make everything go electric, because you've got lots of clean electricity, which lowers the operating carbon to zero, then embodied carbon is everything. I mean, it's what we're talking about. So it becomes critically important and more important than anyone ever thought. 20 years ago, nobody even worried about it because operating carbon was such, so, such a big part of it. But every time the operating carbon goes down, the embodied carbon, the upfront carbon becomes more important. And as I said in the book, and as I say all the time, when you look at the world through the lens of upfront or embodied carbon, everything changes. You just
0: look at things differently. Are, are you optimistic uh, Is your glass half full or cla- uh, glass half empty at this point?
1: Absolutely half full. I uh, When you look at what we've done with the the uptake of renewables in terms of renewable energy, when you look at um, the dropping cost of photovoltaics down 95 percent in a decade, dropping cost in batteries down 95 percent, um, I'm very optimistic We're the things that are holding us back are not the technologies. We know what to do. What's holding us back is politics, uh, the politics of fossil fuels. And as we know in Canada, when we've got Alberta and we've got so much money being earned by selling oil and selling natural gas, it's a tough thing to get off. But no, We know what to do, and I'm very optimistic that we actually can do it if we get through the issues of the
0: politics. It's all about will, I imagine. Uh, It's all about will. Uh, Lloyd, thanks so much for your time today on Earth Day. We really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure.